<clears throat> Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of your grace that is new every morning and that we are the thankful recipients of something we don't deserve. Um, we're born in Adam. We're born in rebellion against you. And if you didn't work, we would die. If you uh, did not move on our hearts to love Christ, to have faith in Him, we would perish. And so we're so grateful that the work of the triune God is on um, our behalf to bring us to Jesus, to bring us to faith, and to keep us there. And so we ask that you, um, again, as we take up the topic of the definite atonement of Christ, that you would be with us. You'd, by your Spirit, give us wisdom, give us hearts that are receptive to the truth of your Word, and that you would help us think through these things rightly. Um, and we ask for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are... Um, Continuing, hey Jeff, continuing on through our brief study uh, of Calvinism, the, the Reformed doctrine of how we're saved. Um, and last time we were last time we were talking through the objections on uh, unconditional election. And the point was made by uh, one of the girls in the class that the, the difficulty uh, from a, from a um, uh, feminine perspective se seems to be that when we think about God's purposeful love of His people, um, it seems very clinical. It seems very analytical, theoretical, and there's not heart there. Does that, is that fair? From, um, and so... It, it seems more attractive to men because we think logically, we, most of the time, we think logically, we think, you know, uh, in, in, in systems a lot of times. But with women, it's unemotional, unloving, theoretical, and, and clinical. And so what we're taking up today, um, and I, I think that's a fair objection from the standpoint of how we present it, but I think what we're taking up today, in my view, uh, addresses that concern in a big way. It doesn't get more emotional than a man giving up his life for his woman, right? And, and really, when we talk about the doctrine of limited atonement, we're talking about definite atonement. What, for, for whom did Christ die? You come to something from our human experience is very emotional, very um, loving. So Jesus said it, that there's no greater love than someone lay down his life for his friends. Not everybody's a friend. But the people that you intend to sacrifice for, that happens. Um, there, there's emotion there. So, and yet, in saying that, uh, if I could parrot Spurgeon, this is the manliest of doctrines. <laughs> Limited atonement. What Christ has done and why it should move us greatly is a manly doctrine. All right, so we continue with our discussion of the five points of Calvinism, and I want to review those definitions uh, that we have at this point. Uh, total depravity. What we mean by total depravity or total inability is mainly that the very nature of man has been so affected by original sin, the fall of Adam, that every part of his being is affected by evil. In other words, 
There's not a single part of man that has not been fatally infected by sin. It's all corrupt, thoroughly corrupt. Doesn't mean that we're bad as we could be. Doesn't mean that we're all Hitlers, uh, as if that's as bad as we can be. I think, I think there's <laughs> historical evidence that you can be even worse than Hitler. Uh, Stalin would be one of those, yes. But even so, it doesn't mean that all of us are, are, are that way. It means that the nature is such that we all pull from that same rebellious stream in every facet of our, of our existence. So total depravity is that man is helpless. Uh, fatally infected by sin, including the, the body, the mind, the emotions, the conscience, and the will. All right, so that's total depravity. What we mean by unconditional election is the eternal, sovereign, unmerited, we don't deserve it, immutable, it doesn't change, decree of God, whereby, according to the wise counsel of his own will and for his own glory, he has selected for himself some individuals from among all mankind and of every nation to be redeemed and everlastingly saved by Christ. So that's a big long definition to mean before the foundation of the world, out of fallen humanity, God chose to carve out a people out of the clay. The lump of clay is fallen humanity. He carves out, carves it, carves. He carves out a portion of the lump to make a vessel of honor for, for himself. All right. What we mean by irresistible grace or the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit is God's gracious work in which he, according to his eternal purpose and electing grace, powerfully subdues the sinner's rebellion, causing him to turn to Christ in genuine faith and earnest repentance. That's irresistible grace. Uh, uh, so we're looking today at a new definition uh, with limited atonement and definite atonement. Do you have any more handouts? Are we there. Okay. Can we? Uh, limited atonement. What we mean by limited atonement or definite atonement is that is that the redemptive work of Christ was a was definite in design and accomplishment. It was not intended to make salvation possible for every man, but to actually accomplish salvation for the elect. So Christ, acting as the representative for all of his people, fully satisfies God's righteous demand against, or righteous judgment against sin, right? So he takes on the sin of his people, and he accomplishes eternal redemption for them. That's what we're arguing for in limited atonement. The, when Christ died, he didn't die for a possibility. He didn't die for a maybe. He died for a definite, um, a, a definite result, which is saving his people. That's what was, and, and no others. That's that, and that's the part that everybody kind of gets verklempt about. Is is that he did it for his people, right? So. And you can already, you can already hear the objections, right? The collective howl, and, and, and something like that. Um, even though Christ's obedience and sufferings were of infinite value, he's sufficient for all the world. The intention was for his people. Does that make? We're not. So when I say limited atonement, I'm not saying Jesus 
blood only went, you know, it was only so valuable. It only buys so much. That's not what, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, what's he buying? What's he purchasing? What's he redeeming with his death? Point number one, everybody limits the atonement of Christ. Everybody does. Unless you're a heretic and believe in universal redemption, why are we going to church if you believe that? Everybody limits the atonement of Christ. Um, both those who believe in this free will, it's man's deal, or those who believe in the sovereign free will of God limit it in some fashion. Free will guys, we call them, uh, the big word there is Ar the Arminian guys, um, believe that Christ's work is limited in what it accomplished, in its effectiveness, right? <clears throat> it's out there. It's a great pool of merit. Sounds Catholic to me. It's a great pool of merit, the, the atonement of Christ, and you, helpless sinner, thoroughly corrupted by the sin of Adam, could do no good on your own, must do a good work and reach out and grab the merit and pull it in and therefore you're redeemed. That, so the bridge is wide. Lorraine Bettner says this way for the Arminian position, the, the non-Calvinist position. The bridge is wide, but it only goes halfway across the chasm, right? So that's the, that's the idea. Uh, for those guys is that it's it's there it's sufficient for everybody but you got to make it effective you got to do the saving you got to do that last step after Christ has taken nine right it didn't secure salvation for anyone it was simply intended to make forgiveness of sins possible on the condition of your awesomely awesome faith so those who are of the free grace model the understanding from the reform perspective is that the bridge is narrow for the elect, for those who God chose for the foundation of the world, the Spirit's calling. It's narrow, but it goes all the way across. It gets us to the other side. Does that make sense? What's, for whom did Christ die is the question. What, what's the purpose of the death of Christ? So it was God's intention in sending His Son to accomplish the redemption of those whom he had chosen for salvation. Um, our limitation on our side is limit in design. What was he intending? Because we, we agree not everybody's saved, right? There are guys in the Old Testament, Pharaoh, who are, who are in hell. What are we going to do with that? Did he die for Pharaoh? Right? No. He, he says, for this purpose I raised you up to condemn you. So, so the atonement of Christ does not apply to Pharaoh. So we can say that at least there's a limitation with Pharaoh, right? Can we, can we, at, the very at the very least, Pharaoh. I'm going to argue that there's probably a few more than Pharaoh. And, and that is, we, let, we chuckle, but it's grievous that that's the case. That's a serious thing. But at the same time, What's his intention? It speaks to his intention. So everybody limits it from somehow. Could you know? Did Pharaoh not have faith? Well, yeah, he didn't have faith. I mean, <laughs> pretty clear. Who is this God that I should worship him? That's an unbelief statement. What did the cross actually accomplish? The real issue in this controversy is not so much the extent of the redemptive work of Christ as it is the intent 
I was, there's a good Baptist statement for you. Not the extent, the intent. Who is he intending to save? All right. Yes, I guess. Sure it is. What is the sentence for the second blank? About free grace. Yes. Design. Yes, that's good. Tammy keeping me accountable on the blanks. Because, you know, early in the morning when I do these handouts, I'm like, oh, blank that, blank that, blank that. Getting all ready to go, and then I forget what I did. Okay. And power, you know that would be nice if I could figure out how to work it. Um, all right. We're going to go back to our thing again. Every, every time we do this, we pull from uh, the idea that um, this whole Reformed idea and understanding of salvation did not start with Calvin. Okay? So we go back to the first and second centuries and all that. So let's look at Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. Jesus died for men of every kind, not all men. That was, his, that was his statement. As Jacob served Laban for the cattle that were spotted, and of various forms, so Christ served even to the cross for men of every kind, of many and various shapes, procuring them by his blood and the mystery of the cross. Well, he's pointing to a limited herd, <laughs> right, with Jacob, but they come from every nation, every people group. Uh, Tertullian says this, Yea, in that body in which he could die through the flesh, he died not through, not through the church, but verily, verily I say, for the church, by changing body for body, and that which is fleshly for that which is spiritual. Christ died for a people, for the church. And then there's a, a I think I have a quote there from Jerome as well. Um, but, you know, y'all can read that on your, on your own. Although I like it. I'll read it. Christ is sacrificed for the salvation of believers. That's a pretty clear statement there. And then he goes on through that. All right. Like I said before, I'm a Calvinist. And I wear the label proudly. I have a scarlet letter C Southern Baptist shirt at, at home. Um, I'm a Calvinist because I'm a Trinitarian. Uh, there's no disunity among the persons of the Godhead. It, the Father elects them, right? The Son dies and protects them. The Spirit, what does it say? Come on. Oh, she's beating all bashful. The Spirit resurrects them, yes? Uh, the Father chooses, the Son gets bruised for them, and the Spirit renews and bears fruit in them. Yes? Yeah, I am. I am. This is Charlotte. This is this is the great philosopher of our day, Shy of Lynn. I'm looking at Audrey and, and What's the side? The side is Lord knows he died. Uh, Lord knows he tried. Alright, so Alright, so Scripture teaches Scripture teaches that God purposed to redeem a certain people and not others. And we talked about this under unconditional election. What was the what was the plan? What was the purpose of the Father? It, 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 scripture is clear regarding the elective and sovereign love of God's grace to redeem a people out of a fallen and condemned humanity. For, uh, for example, para ejemplar. Um, <laughs> I totally botched that up. All right. First Peter 2. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a grace that covers all nationalities, all tongues. And so we want to cover all the tongues. All right. 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9. Uh, it starts, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Talking about Christ. They stumble, 
they, the unbelievers, stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let the drum roll happen. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there you have this clear expression by Peter of there are people who are destined not to trust Jesus and who will be condemned for their unbelief. And there are others who are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, clearly delineating some are, some ain't, right? And we've talked about this uh, the last couple of times regarding the role of the Father in salvation, but there's, there's this clear expression that God is, his intention was never to save everybody. Now, the objection is, then why do we evangelize? What? Again, we go back to, one, we're commanded to do it. So if we believe God is sovereign and king, you, you, we, we obey the king. Two, I don't know who those are. Right? I don't know who the elect are. I don't know who, the, I don't know who he's marked out. If I did, we'd just go preach to them. Be done with it. Let's go home. Right? We don't know that. Part of the great drama of salvation is that... And I said this last week, there's gold in their hills. The mission is sure. Christ's mission is finished. His mission is accomplished. Ours is ongoing. We're out to be the means by which this happens. So that's why that continues. So we see that Scripture teaches that God has a particular people in mind. And we see that Scripture teaches that it is for these in particular that Christ died. And that is not a New Testament innovation. That is Isaiah. Isaiah, our friends down under in Australia would say. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He makes all to be accounted righteous? Everybody? This is many. And of those many, those are, the, those are the sins that he's bearing at his death. He doesn't bear the sins of everyone, but those whom are accounted righteous. It's not a general atonement, but very specific. Jesus says this in John 6, which just sit at John 6 for a while. Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come. There's the election. There's the drawing right there. Father and Spirit, right there in that sentence. All that the Father gives me will come, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, there's this agreement among the Trinity of how this is going to work, what they're doing. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. Well, what do you do with those who are lost then? How do you account for... How do you account for those who are not coming to Jesus? How do you account for those who die in their sin and, are, and give no evidence of any kind of profession of faith or trust in Christ at all? What is he saying? 
Did, did he lose one that God had given him? No. I lose none of those that he's given me. But I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. If the Father hasn't given, the Son ain't raising. That's the point of that. This is a, this is a huge statement on sovereignty of God in salvation. I mean, how else can, how else can you understand that? I don't see a way around that. It even prevents Him from... Choosing his own. Right. It says not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right. There's not even this side door. Right. Where you can get in the, the flow. I'll talk to my dad about you later. Right. There's none of that. I come to do the will of my father. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I, I had a problem with this whole Calvinism doctrine. But, I mean, when you read scripture, it is clear. Um, but I had a problem with it because I think we, we put uh, different rules on God than we do everything mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. Because when we look at a marriage and a man and a woman, mm -hmm. we don't go, well, how dare he love his wife more than these other women? We, we don't say how dare he Although love, in this culture... How dare he love his children more than those other children who right. he is. Right. We, we never put that... In fact, we, we look deplorably on people who love other women the same way they love their wife. At whatever station in life. That's probably. <laughs> President on down. I mean, we yeah. have this problem yeah, with moral failings. And, and the way that the Bible talks of Jesus and the church is as a bride and bridegroom. And so why mm -hmm. it, it's a, it, it is a picture of that special love for a special people, just like in marriage, there's a special love right. between a man and a woman right. that doesn't extend to yeah. everybody. <coughs> right. And yet the so. knee-jerk reaction is, how dare you, God, choose someone to love? Right. How dare you? Yeah. Who, who, who are you to be so selective? God. <laughs> and, that, and that way we make, we make him our own we make him in our image. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so Paul says to the elders in Acts 20, 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Again, there's a, there's a substitutionary atonement there for the church of God that he obtained with his own blood. Um, he obtained the church with his own blood. It's the church that the elders are to care for. Ephesians 5.25, this goes to Tammy's point. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So when I was going through that, the, thing, the thought that came to my mind at 4.30 this morning as I was banging the rest of this out was, Husbands, don't love your wives like an Arminian. Because if we're to love God, we image God, who He is, right? Don't love your wives like an Arminian. Uh, if Christ gave Himself up for all people in the same way, we are commanded to love all women in the same way that we love our wives. And that's not human flourishing, that's suicide. That's a great way to end your life early. We would never do that. We would never do that, to, to put on somebody else that you need to love every woman on, the, on your street corner 
the same way as your, as your wife. That's just foolishness. Look at John 10. John 10, starting in verse 3, talking about the good shepherd. Uh, Jesus says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So Jesus is talking about generally what a good shepherd looks like, what they see that in their common context. And then he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for everybody. The sheep. For the sheep. Not every sheep. Not every, not every animal. For the sheep. And he says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as a father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, his mission is one of definite atonement. It's, it's, this is a representative one-to-one -one relationship. I'm laying down my life for them. I'm substituting myself for them. But not everyone. It's even in his name that this is true. It's even in his name. Matthew 121 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his people from their sins. He will save. Not might save, not could save, not maybe save, will save. It's a definite atonement. Another thing that's involved in this, even now. He intercedes for his people. Even now, he intercedes for his people. Uh, Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who indeed is interceding for us? There's a limited uh, high priest ministry that Christ is doing even now for his people. John 17 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Who are those that have eternal life? Those whom the Father has given to the Son. And he's given the Son the authority to give them life, to redeem them to purchase them. Um, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Uh, verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Um, he says in, in verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Incidentally, that Holy Father part, uh, Jesus is not talking about a little social justice warrior in Rome with a funny hat. He's talking to the Father, right? A name for the Father. Um, John 17, 20 through 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Again, it goes on and on. I got oodles of text here. We could just keep going. But... And I put a lot of the sites in here for you in your notes uh, because we have limited time. Um, Even now, he intercedes for his people. Not every person on the planet, past, present, future, 
He intercedes for those that the Father has given him. And Scripture uh, teaches us that those people he's interceding for are the same for whom he has died. Those for whom he has died and those for whom he intercedes are the same people. And I just commend to you Hebrews 7, chapter 7 through chapter 10. Just, just, just go there and read through that for a while. Um, here, here's, here's an example. Uh, but he holds his priesthood permanently. And this is in chapter 7, verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Who draws near to God, incidentally? Those whom the Father has called. Those whom the Father is drawing, right? We talked about in John 6 that that word draw is, uh, is against nature, against gravity. It's the water out of the well. There's a bucket and God is drawing them against what would be the natural flow, the course of this world. Um, yes, the natural flow, the course of this world um, operation. So John 6 uh, points to that. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He has no need, like those high priests, verse 27, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once. So he's interceding. He's offering atonement. For those people, for the people uh, that he has, that he's interceding for, definite atonement for the people he now intercedes for. So we have, we have again, this, this one-to-one relationship for his, his work on intercession with, on our behalf, uh, other, other, Hebrews 9 talks about, um, and this atonement on our behalf. There, it's a one-to-one relationship. So the scripture represents the priestly functions uh, of, of sacrifice and intercession as coextensive, they're, they're the same for the same group of people. Um, all right. If if we would know for whom Christ offered Himself as a sacrifice, we need only to answer the question: For whom does He make intercession? intercession? And the answer is is fairly uh, clear. He doesn't intercede for the world, and we saw this in John 17, but for those given Him by the Father. Number one. Number two. He intercedes for the elect, Romans 8.34. He intercedes for the elect. Number three, he intercedes for those who come to God by him, Hebrews 7. He intercedes for those who are called according to the terms of the new covenant. And one of the things that we're going to, I think, discuss later on uh, is this idea of the eternal covenant between the Trinity the members of the Trinity, that, that whole idea of what was going on, as much as we can tell from scriptural evidence, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit prior to the creation of the world regarding this. Because there's some, there's some hints, there's some clear statements on um, this eternal covenant. Alright, so scripture teaches that Jesus came to save the following. Notice the limiting factor of these people that scripture clearly says Jesus came to save. His people, not every people, his people, those given to him by the Father, and we've talked about this, his sheep, we've seen that, his friends, no greater love than the man laid down his life for his friends, you're my friends, uh, his church, we've seen that, those who are called and those who are brought to God by him, and I've given you kind of a string side of that stuff. Uh, 
Definite atonement is part of the unified work of the Trinity. The unified work of the Trinity. And, I, and I've said at the beginning, I'll say it again, I'm a Calvinist because I'm a Trinitarian. Here's the work of the Trinity in a nutshell. 1 Peter uh, 1, 2 is a good starting place for that. Let me get to that real quick. We'll read that. Actually, it's just there. Just read it. It's all good. You see that the Father chose and gave to the Son certain sinners to be redeemed by Him. And I've given a list of sites. The Son laid down His life for those given to Him by the Father. And the Spirit applies the redemptive work of the Son. And, there, and there's, as much as I can do, the biblical evidence for each of those statements. If, if Jesus' intention in dying was to make it possible for everybody, then there is injected in the Godhead a disunity. It's more than the Father elected. It's more than the Spirit intends to um, regenerate. That's not going to happen. There's perfect unity among the persons of God. The Father purposes to save the elect and the elect only. The Spirit purposes to apply salvation to the elect only. Would the Son pursue a purpose contrary to that of the Father and the Spirit? He specifically says no. He's not going to do that. Uh, with a statement like, my food, it's pretty important, food. We're Baptists, food is very important. <laughs> my food is to do the will of Him who sent me to accomplish His work, John 4. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Again and again, His will Oh, here's one. Hebrews 10, 7. Listen to this. Then behold, and then I said, Behold, I have come to your will, to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. That's, a, that's from Isaiah, right? And so, again, that points to that whole covenant with the Father before the creation of the world that we're going to get to. Why is this important? Why does this matter that we discuss the limit of Christ's atonement, His definite atonement? So what? This whole discussion about the Father's electing grace, the Spirit's uh, uh, regeneration of the heart, the need for that, and the, the, the limited, the definite atonement of the Son is a massive statement for us to be, have assurance that we're His. I can be confident that I am going to make it to the end, and that's where we're going after we get through with these middle ones, that I'm going to make it to the end because it's the work of God in my heart that's keeping me there. Because it ain't me. I know me. In my flesh, there's no good thing. And so Scripture teaches that Christ's definite atonement is another basis for our assurance as believers. The Scripture declares that all of those for whom Christ died, died in Him and with Him to the reigning power of sin. How do you fight sin? How do you want to, what's the power there to do that? Christ purchased your sanctification. He purchased 
you moving from rebel to saint. You're declared righteous and then you're made righteous. Right? Not perfect until we see him face to face. But we're on a we're on a we're on a spectrum, right? We're moving toward it. Um, if that's not the case, then we're just going to rest in our sin and not reflect Christ like we should. We don't rest. We're called to move forward in Him. All right. The Scripture depicts, number two, the Scripture depicts Christ as the representative or federal head of all believers, not of all men. Just as Adam's one act of disobedience actually condemned all he represented, even so, Christ's one act of lifelong obedience, up until including his death, actually justifies all whom he represents. It's one of the reasons I have a really hard problem with this whole debate on was there a real historical Adam. Uh, there's some believers that argue that Adam was more of a figurative, kind of mythological, there to make a theological point kind of thing. There is such a one-to-one -one relationship between Adam and everybody being fallen and Christ and those for whom he redeems. As Reformed folks, I think that's a dangerous argument for us to make. As a Christian, I think that's a dangerous argument to make because if you do away with a real Adam, you do away with a real Jesus. It's a one-to-one -one relationship in Romans 5. And so when we see that, um, th there is comfort there. There's assurance there that Christ is my representative and He's real. Alright, number three. The Bible plainly teaches that the death of Christ secured for His people all the accompanying gifts of God's grace. That's Romans 8.32. Um, if, the, if, the, if the goal of Christ's death was to accomplish nothing more for the elect than He did for the non-elect, right? It, it was just, meh then what's the point of him dying, right? All of the gifts and the benefits that we, see, that we read about in Ephesians 1 are purchased by Christ for his people. Um, it, it, it's the confidence uh, of his love. The, 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 it's the accomplishment of Christ's substitution for his people that demonstrates the love of God. John, that's what John tells us. We know that he loved because he sent his son, right? What he tells us. And it's the confidence of his love, his intentional, definite love for his people that we can say with Paul, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The, the, the atonement is not some amorphous, corporate, get yourself into IBM to be part of the company kind of thing. What Jesus did is he has a people in mind. I mean, think about this, the cross. He's clicking off names. He's seeing faces. He's, uh, that's the way I picture it. Um, you want to fight your sin? Recognize that each sin you commit is a big so what to the death of Christ. Every time we sin, so what? And yet, it's like a wife not caring that her husband is sacrificing himself for her. Right? That's, what the, that's, the, that's the wickedness of sin. It's a slap to the face of this definite, intentional love of Jesus. Uh, a lot is made of the purpose of redemption being for the glory of God. It's this big, huge term that we like to throw around. 
And that's true. But I fear sometimes that we get very clinical with that glory of God. It's not about you. And it's not. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. It's not about you. But it is about you. Right? And here we see it. There, I don't want us to gravitate toward a, a kind of a heartless logic. Glory is simply making much of who God is. And He loves His people. We need to celebrate that. That He loves His people. He loves them to the exclusion of all others. He loves them big time. This is a huge deal. If you are one of His, if you're one of His, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What does that mean if it's to everybody anyway and meh? Who's going to separate Christ from His bride? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? These are not wine and cheese doctrines. This is gritty theology that should grab our hearts and pull us closer into Jesus because of what He's done intentionally for His people. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The more than conquerors is not about winning your next football game. It's about how we live and how we die and how we stay in Him. And I have confidence and assurance and trust that I can do that because He loves, we love, because He first loved us. That's my confidence. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, the definite love of God of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When I read those verses, I think purposeful. I don't think big, you know, amoebic green cloud above me of love of God. What is that? It's a definite purposeful work of a person because God is a person for his people. And that should warm the heart. That's not cold. That's not clinical. That's not theoretical. That's intentional. I love you because I love you kind of God. And it's definite. Does that make sense? All right. I left a few minutes for um, complaints, objections, fruit to be thrown. Uh, if you have some, some comments, we can talk about that for a little bit. But next week we're going to get to objections. And I'll probably get to the stuff that you thought I was going to get to. So, uh, anyway, any, any, yeah? No, I can say for myself, I've struggled with these passages. When I uh, first came to Christ, I was kind of agnostic and an atheist as an adult. And uh, I, I trembled at God's word when I read some of these passages because it was, the, the question becomes, are you saved? Or mm -hmm. Are you among the elect? Yeah. And I think when this doctrine lacks, that the whole church suffers from because you you never learn to fear the Lord mm -hmm. and if you don't I mean there's so many promises in scripture for those who fear the Lord right. these passages make you ask that question are you among them right and, uh, when you fear the Lord you read the scriptures and you say wow I, I actually do fear the Lord Isaiah 61 I think 
because you know to him well I look the one who trembles right. my word and, right and then you you find it's like oh, I've kind of done that you know and you you fear the Lord because of the doctrine of limited atonement and the really the passages that support it really. yeah you 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 fear him in the sense that I well I, I don't what I when I fear God I think in terms of why me. Uh, because one of the things that I think that we that, that people gravitate toward that's a danger on this stuff is, well, I just don't know if I'm one of his. Yeah. I just don't know. I'm all freaked out. I'm up at night. I got a nosebleed in the corner because I don't know if I'm elect. Well, one of the things that this that this these doctrines have helped me with, because I had massive struggles with assurance early on. Just I knew my heart. I knew where I was. I can't keep me kept. I'm going to be burning in hell one of these I'm just convinced of it just convinced of it but one of the things that this, that this has done for me just from a personal standpoint is I know that my heart would never be inclined toward Christ at all but for the electing grace of God Amazing grace that taught my heart to that fear. taught my heart to, exactly my fears are that's right because of knowing that that I, I do fear him that does bother me. I am scared sometimes about what have I done? My sin, you know, is just, it's overwhelming sometimes that I still struggle with things, you know, and, 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 and submitting that again to the cross. Here I am again, you know, and yet here I am again. Because I'm here again, I can have confidence knowing who he is and what he's done is sufficient and, and effective from my heart. That, that to me this is a massive assurance doctrine. Yeah. What is the first those who justified he sanctified those who sanctified? It's in Romans eight. He glorified I can't remember all of it, but it's all the same. There's boats. five by the way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I mean those who he saved, he's making holy. Right. Those who he's making holy, he's not going to let go. Right. The if we were going to do it mathematically those whom he foreknew is the same that he called, and those that he called is the same that he justified, and those that he justified are the same that he glorified, right? The, the, I know there's four. The one is he's making the image of Jesus, and that comes before those, but that's all part of the same five. But it's the same mathematical number. There's not fewer being glorified than he's called. It's, and all the verbs are God's verbs. There are, no, there are no man verbs in there. They're all God verbs. He's doing the action. Massive assurance there. Massive assurance. Anything else? Uh, yes, sir. There's a lot of tension with this doctrine. Yeah. That uh, all, you know, being a fearing the Lord is evidence that He's working in you. Mm -hmm. In a way, is the reason not to fear, right? Because he's saving you, right? There's just a lot of tension. There, yes, there is, and most good things there is. <laughs> there's always tension, and 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 there should be. Um, it keeps us tight, <laughs> right? It keeps us tethered to him. That there's tension, rather than floating off into ditches on either side. Mm. Uh, because we don't want to, and there's a ditch on, on either side with this assurance thing too. We can be so assured of our salvation that we're just wallowing on the ditch of 
whoo, let me sin more so that grace can abound, right? And, and we just live over here in, in the mud. And, and so we try to pull back against that. No, uh, without the holiness, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord, right? We, we, we pull that out of that ditch, the left, I'll call it the left ditch, just because, you know. And then, then we get over to the right side, which is, you've got to do this, you've got to drink, you, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't chew or dance with girls who do, you're doing the, the legal list over here on the right, and, 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 and we'll just call that the, the alt-right, uh, over here, of all these things. And so, with, with that, uh, you know, you've got to say, no, the grace of Christ is what constrains us. It's His kindness that brings us to repentance, not your list. And so there's tension on both sides. But that's good. I, I'm, I'm doing this all the time. But I'm still walking where I need to walk, right? I'm still, I'm still what is it Spurgeon said? There's an there's a, there's a, there's a anchor on either side to keep it straight on the horse. <laughs> he says. So I don't know how really that works physically. But, but it's kind of the... Anyway, but he had a lot of interesting statements uh, along those lines. But yeah, you're right. There's tension. There should be. With the Trinity, there's tension. How, you know, every, every great doctrine that you hold to, there's tension. There's mystery there. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Okay, just wondering, have you all talked about what about the people who haven't had the opportunity of hearing the gospel yet? Like, what about... The, the, the innocent native in, on the island? Yeah, the innocent native on the island. The innocent native on the island. There is no that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, yes, the answer is yes. We have, we have talked about that, we, uh, just to cut to that. Um, the, and the argument is that all men everywhere in Romans talks about how they're without excuse because they know the God that created the earth, even though they may deny creation, it was motor motion, matter, motion, and chance that exploded. Even though they may deny that and try to suppress the truth of that we have a creator, they know it. There's that innate knowledge that, that God exists and He's very powerful, <laughs> that He's eternal, right? So we know that. And so Romans 1 talks about how all men everywhere are without excuse. They're, what happens about the innocent native on the island and, and whatever, that's a, that's a theoretical fiction. There's no one innocent, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There aren't even seekers. No one seeks after God. I mean, that's, Paul goes to that whole thing. And so all of, all of that is that we're all condemned. And again, this goes to that too. Who's he saving? Now, I, I think what, what that leads to, what that question is really kind of leading up to is what about the innocent native on the island that's like, if I could just know this God, I know there is a God, mm -hmm. if I could just know this God. And I will say that if you read accounts of missionaries, and right. that's why we send missionaries, right. there are accounts of people like that who really were, we're seeking after something. On, we're seeking something, yeah. and God brought someone with the truth to them. Um, it, but the, the, the idea of there's somebody that, like, I just wish I could be holy, I wish I could know God, I wish I could do this, and but God's going to say, no, not you. Right. That, that's, that's, not what we're, that's not what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with is people are born in sin, they love their sin, 
they want to sin, and unless God moves, that's where they stay. And in that person's heart, that, that is, you know, I know the stars are big, and there's a God out. There's got to be some deity out there. I want to serve that deity and not the, not the millions of gods that live under the rocks in my native religion, right? I recognize there's something big, but I don't know what. There's an old prayer uh, from the 700s BC, from the, the, the um, Sumer, is a Sumer prayer, prayer to the unknown God, it's called. It says, the God I know or do not know, forgive my sin. The goddess I know or do not know, forgive my sin. To the, to the you know, whatever. And it just goes on. It's just the most pathetic thing I think I've, I've ever read of this ongoing, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. This stuff that we're talking about with God's plan, His purpose, to save a people, if that person on the island, uh, if someone on an island out of nowhere is is has the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart, they are chosen by God, and He will make a way for a missionary to get there. And the means of whole villages in some of those areas have come to faith in Christ. And we read or read about uh, um, you know some of the some of those missionaries at home of whole villages coming to faith because who had no idea about the gospel, but they knew something, or maybe they didn't. And rather than eat the missionary, they listened to the missionary, and the whole village became saved. The same. Right, well, yeah, you're right, you're right. There, there, there were a couple, of, a couple of guys who sacrificed to get there. But that's why we go, because the mission is sure, right? That's why, that's, again, it puts on us the duty to go and tell and open our mouths, even in Tyler, even in Bullard High School, to open our mouths and talk about um, what Christ has done and why, and why we need a Savior. Yeah, good. That's a great question. That's brilliant. And we know that uh, God will finish the work He starts. That's right. So if there is someone out there who would believe, right. God will send yeah. Yeah, and he may send you. <laughs> be ready for that one. <laughs> Are we willing to go? Well, we will be made willing. <laughs> Very good. Anything else? All right. Well, it's so nice to have girls in the class today. I really appreciate it. <laughs> to hear about this amazing love of Christ, who is definitely for his people. All right, let's pray, and we'll be done. Lord, when we read your scripture, we are overwhelmed by the display of your grace toward us. We're overwhelmed by the wisdom that you have to carry out a plan that you designed before one grain of sand was created. And from eternity past, you desired <clears throat> to redeem a people to yourself through the work of your Son and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we're floored by that. We don't deserve it. We're no better than anybody else. But you and your kindness have seen fit to call us, to save us. And though we continue to struggle with our own rebellion, the remnants of our rebellion, you're so good to us as a father who disciplines us. You bring us again and again to the cross of Christ and show us the 
the depth of your love for us. God, we pray that, number one, that that would ground us so heavily in the desire to reflect you well, to reflect your image well, and not to give in to the rebellion that remains in our hearts. But number two, Lord, I pray that it would give us boldness, that your mission is sure, that we can confidently share the gospel, we can confidently trust the gospel, because what you started, you will finish. We thank you that when Christ said, it is finished, he wasn't kidding. He meant it. And we trust him. Father, help us to love him more. And as we go into the next service, we pray that your gospel would again be trumpeted to the world. That it would be trumpeted to saints who need to hear it again and again. That we serve a big God who loves us. That he's transcendent above all things and yet he is personal with every believer that he loves his church and we we pray that we would honor him by loving him back and loving each other as he has loved us it's in christ's name we pray amen, amen.